Hey people, my name is Eldon and I'm a part of the tribe. I had the privilege of interviewing Brian Knight, an oral historian, a handsome brother from Kenya, and he he you know he enlightened me on his perspectives behind Pan-Africanism and how he how he interacts with the thought of the idea of the dream and what his visions are for the future. I hope you guys take the time to really delve, really delve, really listen to what's being thrown across the board. And so the history that's being made in this conversation. Well, yeah, I hope you guys like it. Actually. I'd never really thought about the Black British experience. And I started learning about, you know, radicals in the UK, learning about the Black Panthers, learning about the Mangrove Nine trial learning about people like Claudia Jones. I mean, <laughs> to this day, I don't know how that module was ever allowed because, you know, being in Exeter, I don't think that's something that was high on the agenda. But it was, a, it was a real privilege to learn about all of these people. And that interest, I, I, I can't explain it. You know, when something moves you so much and when you feel so connected to a story that you just can't, explain and I just knew that I had to keep going on and keep uh, reading more about it. I ended up doing a um, civil service internship at the home office and that was the year that the Windrush scandal broke. So I'd just been learning about this history. Now I am at the home office. We've got this national scandal about everything that I had been learning about. So that led me to read even more and become even more vocal about it and you know all of this was going on in the background whilst I was you know still you know learning the typical stuff at university kind of building that language you know reading and becoming more you know self-aware more aware of you know my environment my people and everything and that culminated to my dissertation which is probably the work that I'm most proud of up to date because I decided to do an oral history project on the British Black Panther movement. And it was all on the Mangrove Nine trial as a kind of case study of all of this. Now, this was before Snorlax. This was before, you know, obviously now it's, you know, becoming a popular topic. And, you know, looking back, I think I was, you know, slightly crazy to have done it because, you know, I had a year to come up, come up with this oral history project. I didn't know any of the Panthers. I didn't know any of these activists. But I just started, you know, calling up everyone I could think of, calling up churches, calling up community centers, um, trying to reach people online, calling up photographers that had, you know, been to the same events. And slowly I started creating this base of activists, you know, making this network of uh, Black Power activists from the UK. And I, and I managed, I managed to do the dissertation and you know, to the, yeah, like I said, to this day, that's one of the most, um, one, one of those projects that I'm most proud of. And um, yeah, I continue to, to just be proud that I was able to do that at a time where, you know, a lot of these people in their 70s, 80s, 90s, you know, they're, they're, they're you know, slowly dying, passing on, some of them haven't got the same memory. So I was just, yeah, blessed to have done it at that time. 
So that's kind of where my interest in all of this comes about, because obviously if you're, if you're going to be talking about black power, Pan-Africanism is at the center of it. Um, the black experience is at the center of it. Um, so yeah, that was really my education uh, into all of this. That, that's powerful, man. And that's, and you know, I can only say listening to you, that's more, I can just send you more power and strength, man. That's beautiful, bro. And I think even just, listening to you and how you managed to culminate that project and where it started from, especially oral history, bro. I mean, our people and the way that we archive is orally. And unfortunately, you know, we've seen due to external factors that's been eradicated, but just to see that practice at such a, such a high level, bro, that's, 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 that's props to you, man. Um, and I'd love to like read it. I mean, not, I'd love to listen. Like, I'd love to listen to it. I'd love to read it if that's possible. At some point, man, because that that's that's power, man. Um, I think as you just mentioned, pan-Africanism, which is like obviously why we're here. I think I'm gonna jump straight into the first question, and that is what does pan-Africanism mean to you? And why do you feel like, as you said, why do you feel like it's at the center? Well, to me, pan-Africanism is all about trying to, you know, redress, you know, some of the identity issues that have been caused by, you know, colonialism, uh, been caused by the separations of, you know, African descended people where we've all been, you know, dispersed, where, you know, our identities have really been, you know, created. <laughs> you know, when you look at the, you know, uh, scramble for Africa, the Berlin conference, the Brussels conference, all of that, that was, you know, not the beginning, but it was one of those points that really led to a lot of the issues we see today. So for me, Pan-Africanism is all about trying to reclaim that pre-colonial um, history, that pre-colonial identity, trying to assess how African descended peoples, you know, trying to put together our stories and try and find the essence of that. And, uh, you know, trying to bring that alive and trying to carve out a, united identity for us but an identity that you know it's not just identity in the sense of reading about you know old stories about how we came to be but kind of using those stories using that history using that identity to solve the issues that we have today so that's that's how i see pan-africanism i hear you bro i hear you and i think even on that um how has has your idea of it changed over time? Has it remained the same? You know, and also what is Pan-Africanism? So that's the first question. So has it changed over time from when you started or have you always had that vision? Has it changed over the years? And then the second question is, what does Pan-Africanism look like to you in the future? Okay, I would say, you know, quite recently, actually, my concept of it has been changed. I would say at the beginning, the way that I, you know, first, you know, heard of, Pan-Africanism through Kwame Nkrumah and learning about, you know, the uh, Ghanaian independence story. And I would say I had quite a basic base level understanding of it, you know, kind of just understood that it was just some way of uniting people against, you know, European imperialism, which I think is quite a simple uh, assessment of Pan-Africanism. But recently, um, I interviewed someone who I think, you know, maybe you should consider uh, reaching out to, a Nigerian man called Sam Sage. 
and he was a former uh, speaker at Speaker's Corner. He was one of the founding members of the British Black Power Movement. Uh, he was very involved in Nigeria in uh, anti-government um, movements. And he spoke to me about you know, African cosmology and about how one of the reasons Africa is in the predicament that it's in today is because Africans don't understand their own cosmology. They don't really understand you know, African spirituality and how that can help them kind of create, create a new, um, what can I say, foundation now. So right now, every government or every so-called radical group that is trying to push for change is working off European ideals of, you know, how they should operate, how they should function, what is rational, what isn't. And they kind of bypass, um, you know, looking at you know, African history, pre-colonial history, because you can't really move forward until you know your own identity. And I'd, ne I'd never really considered it that way, never really considered the power of spirituality, the power of our cosmology, all of that. So when I interviewed him, that really made me pause and think, you know, how has this had an impact? And when we see Christianity being something that dominates um, the African continent, you also have to ask yourself, how does that set us back? when we're working off these, you know, European ideologies. That's kind of how a lot of, Af a lot of African societies, uh, how, they're, how they operate. So um, yeah, I've started thinking more deeply about Pan-Africanism and how it can actually be used and applied and also looking at more radical Pan-Africanists. So looking at people like CLR James, you know, reading the Black Jacobins, you know, Toussaint Liverture, looking at, you know, these radical Pan-Africanists and the ideas that they have, but also the differences they have, because I think too often we think Pan-Africanism is just one set thing and everyone must agree. People have different visions uh, of what Pan-Africanism, people define it in different ways. And, you know, we see that all the time. And to your second question about how I see Pan-Africanism working in the future or now, I wrote about this uh, quite recently about how throughout 2020, we had seen all of these radical movements uh, in Africa and you know this, I wouldn't say emergence, I would just say there was a spike of you know radicals being covered at the time. So people like Stella Nyanzi, people like Bobby Wine, um, you had you know radicals in Kenya fighting police brutality so you, you had a lot of activity, NSARS in Nigeria. And I think a lot of these radicals and the movements that demonstration, they seem to be quite localized, well, very localized. And it seemed to just be about what's happening in Kenya, what's happening in Nigeria, without really any conversation around how all of these radicals are connected, how you know, that governments are aided and abetted by neighboring states, you know, how, you know, organizations like the African Union, how they play a role in, you know, aiding police brutality, aiding corruption and all of this. And I think that's one of the reasons that these movements haven't really gone as far in their criticism, because it's all about what's happening, you know, in my plot of land, when actually <laughs> everything is connected all of these um, head of states 
are really working through these, you know, covert, you know, covert alliances that they've got with each other. That's why they were so quiet when everything was going on. Because when NSARS was happening, how many neighboring uh, countries did you hear speaking out against this? When police brutality was going on in Kenya, we didn't hear anything. Uh, you know, most shockingly with NSARS, the African Union, you know, they were so they were so quick to talk about George Floyd, but they won't talk about what's happening on the continent. So in my article, I was really talking about how Pan-Africanism can be applied um, to radical movements of today, how people need to move away from simply mobilizing people in their country, but also trying to build, you know, alliances and get solidarity from within the continent and kind of working in that grander scale. Bro, I hear you entirely. Um, I, I agree with you. I feel like um, the African Union, at times it can definitely come across as a talking shop, which is a shame to see. Um, and, I, and also just on your point about the continent, like the continental agenda last year was and even as we speak right now it's 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 a very vivid one um you know and i wanted to go back to what you were saying earlier about the visions i think that's a very crucial point um like Nkrumah's vision was was different to um Tories or to Cabral's or you know to Kenyatta's or, or to um Sankara's these all there were so many different visions and i think where what the conversation now needs to be around like you said was how do we how do we bridge to an extent, where we're the commonality and these things. Um, yeah, yeah, and, I, and also I think it was very interesting, like you said, um, I think right now, and I think we both know what the effect is, but it's interesting to see how, you know, I often see the term um, Pan-African socialist <laughs> or Black Marxist, and it's just like, how can we critique European practice of European theory? You know what I mean? And it's it's a it's kind of a shame to see how um even with you know when we look when we do look at academia or, or Africana consciousness, a lot of our thinkers are sort of um disregarded. And there's a there's a there's a gentleman, um Dr. Rebecca, beautiful, beautiful man. Um, you know, and he's got like a portfolio of words which I recommend people to check out. Um he talks about, he, he classifies it as academic apartheid. And he basically argues that um, it's, in, it's sort of insanity how we, we can view, you know, Engels, Marx, um, you know, um, Hegel, you know, Jefferson, or, you know, J.S. Mill, Wollstonecraft, you know, all these different thinkers. But we don't apply that, that same level of reverence isn't held for the likes of Du Bois. Or, or Diop, you know, and, you know, Nasser. It's all, these are all very, very interesting things to look at. And I feel like now more than ever, it will require, I don't know what it will require, but I think there definitely needs to be a discourse as to what that looks like and how can we kind of, I don't know, trump it. But um, I definitely agree with you, man. I, I definitely agree with you. Well, I think, I think one of the ways we can do it, I don't think it needs any, you know, special formula. It's just about, being dedicated to learn and, you know, creating environments where people can learn. So, you know, I, I always go back to uh, the Black Power groups because I think they had a perfect model of it. They were teaching people within their community, grassroots people, not academics, um, 
you know, not people who already had learned this. They were teaching the average man and woman about, you know, these big theories. And I've spoken to people who said they had no idea of, you know, <laughs> San Domingo Revolution. They had no idea of Walter Rodney and all of this. But they started reading groups and discussion groups where you get people reading the books. You just, you, you know, you discuss all of these ideas together as a community, but do it in a way that is accessible to people. And this is something that annoys me so much whenever I hear people who have, you know, so many great things to say, but they're not speaking to the people they're trying to serve and represent. And if you're not speaking to people at the grassroots, you know, what are you doing? This is something Stokely Carmichael has frequently spoken about, about how you can say all of these fancy things that, you know, in your lectures, auditorium, but unless you're speaking to the people that your work actually concerns, you, you might as well not even be coming up with these ideas. So I'm very big on making things accessible. And I think, uh, well, something I wrote about when I was talking about the need for African radicals to be more Pan-Africanist in the way that they mobilize is creating forms of communication that can be, um, you know, that can go around the continent, that can be spread, you know, between people. And this is a criticism I've had of, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement uh, in the UK, where, okay, they, you know, there is this, you know, big movement that happened in the summer, but then between the summer and now, has there been a newsletter? Have there been podcasts being made to keep people engaged, to really talk to people about, you know, class, racism, sexism, how, you know, all of these plights are interconnected? There hasn't really been that discussion. And it's, it's not just BLM, it's, you know, I talk about the movements in Kenya, you know, there is no media, be it online, be it, you know, simply communicating to people by going to local communities and just talking. There isn't that communication with people sharing ideas. So that's why you're just having, you know, pockets of resistance happening without any real strategy, any real idea of how you're moving forward. And I don't think that's an effective way to progress. I'm with you on that, man. <laughs> you know, we always have like, it's almost like a, a pantomime of isms and this and this and this and, it's always being chucked around in all these different silos, but it's never actually hitting the people that it needs to hit. You know, so I, I definitely agree with you, man. Um, sorry, I, I was <laughs> my next question to you, bro, is um what impact does pan-Africanism have on your daily life? On my daily life, I am I'd say one of the biggest impact it has is the way that I view or the way that I um, kind of assess any form of injustice, be it racial or otherwise, I'm always thinking about, you know, the bigger picture. So it, just like what we're talking about, removing it from, you know, the local point and trying to look at, you know, the larger structures, the larger forces at play. I would say when it comes to you know, thinking about Africa, which is something that worried me all the time, especially when I see, you know, because I've got family over in Kenya, when I see corruption being, you know, such a big issue, I'm always thinking about Pan-Africanism and trying to find solutions that will unite the continent. Because um, I think some, that's something that, you know, is missing. And even when you look at 
Pan-Africanism, so trying to connect, you know, the issues that we're facing here, part of the diaspora in Britain, and finding how can we, you know, build solidarity within Africa, within America, you know, trying to create the sense. Because if you look back to, so the Black Liberation Front, for example, there were constantly, you know, in the way they operated, constantly thinking about how they can show support to people in Angola, how they can show support to people in, you know, in Kenya, in Ghana, where, wherever it is. And I think that's something that's missing. So I try, I try and think of our issues today in that sense. So yeah, that's how that's how I would I would say it impacts me today. I feel you, bro. I feel you. And I guess my follow-up to that then is how does Pan-Africanism link with other liberation movements, you know, for example, anti-racism, climate, anti-capitalist, black feminism, internationalism, et cetera, et cetera. Well, like like I said at the beginning, I think when we're talking about you know anti-black racism, I think pan-Africanism, you know, is central to that. I don't really know how you can have a conversation about anti-black racism without talking about pan-Africanism. Um, and I would say capitalism is also a question at the center of this in class. And I think people oftentimes try and talk about racism without talking about class. And I think you'd be a fool to see, you know, one without the other, it's, it's all interconnected with capitalism, you know, kind of the thread running between both of those ills. Um, so yeah, that's how, that's how I'd say it's connected. Mm. And how do you feel like, um, how do you feel your Pan-African identity reflects itself in your, yeah, sorry, yeah, how does it reflect itself in your art forms, your daily life? I know it's kind of similar to the previous questions, but how do you feel like it, your identity as a Pan-Africanist reflects, you know, yeah, literally, how, how do you feel like it reflects you, um, you know, even within your work, like, do you feel like there's a certain twang you have, a certain niche, a bit of spice, what do you think it is, bro, that? How does it reflect, in your opinion? I'd say definitely in my writing and definitely in, you know, the guests that I include uh, on the podcast that I do, um, all of the stories that they talk about. So I, you know, some people try and call it a Black podcast, even though it's, you know, I just think of it as a podcast that you know, I just happen to have Black people on, but that's a different conversation. Um the guests that I include are, you know, people who are active or who have been active in movements in America, movements in, you know, in Africa, movements in Britain. And I do that purposely because <laughs> at the core of all of these interviews, you find out just how linked they were, you know, about the people they knew, about, you know, the things they were fighting, uh, some of the communications that there were you know, having like literally di direct links between anti-colonial movements and civil rights movements in America. Um, so I would say Pan-Africanism shows up in my work very heavily in that way. And like I was saying, you can't really talk about, you know, anti-Black racism without talking about Pan-Africanism and trying to see how we are all connected in our experiences. Bro, I'm just resonating with everything you're saying, man. <laughs> um, which Pan-Africans? I know we, we've listed quite a few, but um, 
you could give, you know, you could give two if you want. Um, which Pan-African has inspired you and why? It can be a family member, someone you know, or a public figure. Okay, the two people I would say um, so far that have had the biggest impact on me, one is a lady called Althea Jones-Laquant, and she was the leader of the British Black Power Movement. She's a Trinidadian you know, bio, biochemist. And yeah, she inspires me greatly. And she's one of those people that, you know, is so humble. Um, you, you will never find her in an interview. Trust me, I've tried. You, you will not get her in an interview, but she's someone who just lets her work speak for itself. Um, the second person is Sam Sage. Again, another very humble person who, if you don't know about him already, uh, definitely check out the interview I did with him. He has some amazing stories and the way he thinks, the way that he views this world is just incredible. And even though he's in his 80s, he's also not one of those armchair activists, you know, trying to tell people today how it should be. He, he just sees it for what it is. And uh, he's not just someone saying that uh, you know activists today should follow what him and his comrades were doing he's someone who's very you know realistic in the way he views the world and again just so humble even though he's achieved so much so yeah those are the two people that inspire me the most yeah <laughs> i had to put the gum fingers up when you said auntie hundred man um okay i mean you basically answered this question already but um, I guess just to just to go back on it, can we unite the diaspora under Pan African ideals, and how can and if we can, how can we make it appeal to the younger generation? Well, I'll I'll touch on the second point. One of the best ways I think you know you can make it appeal and you can make it relevant to today is actually through oral history. You know, and maybe I'm biased in that, you know, being an oral historian, that's something that I believe can be used today because we have so many people who hold a wealth of knowledge, you know, who aren't just academics, you know, regurgitating information that they've looked up in an archive. These are people who are actively involved, people who can tell you, this is what I experienced, this is how I did it, this is why I did it. And we have so many of these, you know, legends who are still alive with us today. And to collect this oral history, all you need is a recording device and to go up to them. You know, it doesn't even have to be the leadership of some big movement. You know, speak to your grandparents, ask them about how they were involved in the struggle, what they witnessed. And I think through oral history, you can get people engaged and you can get people to really understand that this isn't something, you know, far removed from their life. This is something very local to you. And, you know, I. I, I just think so more people need to be engaged with oral history and if, if not to help yourself to help other people because you know the older generation are you know slowly dying and we need to collect this information and we need to collect this advice you know <laughs> they're wise they've been through this they can tell us what to do what not to do um so that's how i see i, I think you can really get people engaged in these discussions you bro and the final question is to you 
To live without Pan-Africanism means... That you haven't done your homework. <laughs> mm. Mm. I'm with it. <laughs> I'm with that. <laughs> I'm with that. Because I... Because I, I don't know how you can move forward without seeing how everything is in, interconnected and finding finding solutions that bring your people together. I, I just don't know how you're going to move forward mm. without that. And people who say that you can, again, haven't done their homework. I hear it, man. I hear it. Um, yeah, yeah. Bro, there's a lot of, there's a lot of gems you've kind of dropped. No, not even kind of, you have dropped. And so many different sort of wealthy contributions, man. I just, I need to kind of go back now. And I'm sure anyone that's listening as well, I just kind of go out meditating what you said and kind of just kind of um, conceptualize based on this conversation, man. I think now is the time where, yeah, let's let's not just speak on it. Let's speak on it, let's think on it, and let's produce some for, some some form some form of something tangible, man. So, um, yeah, yeah, this has been this has been powerful. Um, thank you, bro. I'm gonna I'm gonna stop record. But before we do stop record, do you have any last sort of like remarks you want to make out to anyone listening? Any sort of like final points you want to touch on? Well, I'll just urge people to, you know, really go back and read the classics. Um, something that I urge people to always read, and <laughs> this is something that. You know, Auntie Althea uh, told me to do. Read The Black Jacobins by C.L.R. James. Read books like, you know, Walter Rodney's How, you know, Europe Underdeveloped Africa. You know, go, go back and read these classics because they really are accessible. And I'd also urge people to, you know, really look into oral history and consider how they can, you know, archive these stories of people who have done such great things and and use that advice you know it's one thing listening it's one thing reading but how are you actually going to take that to the streets how are you actually going to put you you know these words into practice mm. thank you bro thank you yo people let's get listening yo. you know bro thank you so much it's been it's been thank you it's been amazing man.